He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Thank you, Natalie. You can have a seat. So we are in the series, and be good news. And if you're new to New City, this is going to be really great for you, because you're going to have an opportunity to catch a lot of the DNA of New City in this series. Uh, we'll be all the way, we'll be starting in Luke uh, chapter 13, and we'll be kind of moving through uh, Luke's gospel all the way uh, to Resurrection Sunday. And so if you want to read along, uh, you could pick up Luke's gospel, and you could be in Luke's gospel as we're in Luke's gospel, uh, reading along during the season. Also, those, uh, those guides are available on the app, and we, we own the domain name begoodnews.church. And so if you want to go there, all of the stuff is there as well. This is key for us, and we were sitting around a meeting recently, and I was like, you know, talking about be good news, and what are the challenges, the hurdles that we need to be aware of, and as we start talking about being good news, and one of the hurdles was brought up, actually Pastor Roger brought it up in our meeting, he said, I want to make sure that we communicate clearly to everybody that Jesus is the good news. Um, that we don't try to mistake ourselves as being the good news when Jesus is actually the good news. Uh, we are called to be good news in ways that put on display the good news that is Jesus. Uh, he's the good news. And so what we're doing in this series, we're saying, okay, what is, what is the scripture teaching us about being good news? Uh, but we have been sent in the like manner of Jesus. In John 20, 21, another touchstone verse for us at New City, as the Father sends me, so I'm sending you, says Jesus. And so I, I, I'm sending you out to be to the world the way, the, the things that I am to the world. I'm calling you out to be my body to the world. And so we are called to, to live in like manner. And so we use the incarnation as a model for ministry. The incarnation is, of Jesus is our kind of model for Christian mission. And when I say incarnation of Jesus, like we're speaking here about when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You read about that in John 1.14. Now, I teach about uh, incarnational ministry uh, at times at various uh, institutions, and I was recently at a, a college teaching about incarnational ministry, and I sat on the desk, and I said, okay, class, let's envision a far-off place, and so we envisioned some far-off place in Asia, and we said, what, if you're going to be a missionary, what are the things that you're going to need to do to reach those people with the good news of Jesus? And we start writing ideas on the board, and you always get the same ideas, always. Uh, they, bo they boil down to three categories of word, flesh, and dwell. 
uh, the way that I can articulate them in a college setting is I say word is translation. You're going to have to translate the gospel into the language that people speak. The language that people speak. The only way you can do that, you can translate the gospel in the language that people speak, is by also understanding their unique cultural context. Uh, you can't, you know, you can, you can sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you've learned a foreign language like in a book and prior to going to a foreign country, and then you try to, you know, sort of recreate what you've learned, it doesn't quite land right uh, because you don't understand sort of contextually how to deliver that or you don't have the accent nailed. And uh, I, have, uh, I have said embarrassing things uh, many a time preaching in <laughs> various contexts, uh, not knowing what I was saying. Uh, but translation, contextualization are important, uh, but you really, truly, honestly, and everybody will tell you this. Uh, that if you want to do ministry, Christian ministry, Christian mission, you, you have to be practicing proximity. It's a, it's a key part of it, dwelling. In fact, you, you can't understand the context of the people you're trying to reach or the, really the language they're speaking unless you're living in proximity. And uh, to, to put that in a very sort of practical way, that incarnational ministry or incarnational mission is speaking with people, you know, face-to-face interaction, in the context of community, real authentic relationship. And if you want to do ministry like Jesus, it's going to require uh, that kind of engagement, speaking with actual people that you know, uh, and you know them through the context of living with them in community. So you could say it another way, to be good news, requires eating and drinking at dinner parties. That's Christian mission. Sign me up. I'm in. All right. I, my favorite things, eating and drinking at dinner parties. They're great. Well, what you see in Luke's gospel is uh, Luke says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Jesus came eating and drinking. You see, your table is the primary setting for your mission. And I can't underscore that uh, enough that your table is your primary platform for your Christian mission. And if you want to do ministry like Jesus, you need to start throwing better parties. Right? This is, man, sign me up, right? I'm in. Be good news. This is it. Right? Mission is not something you do to people. Sometimes people th- confuse these things. Uh, what you do to people is service, and it's good, and it's important. But that's not mission. Mission is not something you do to people. Mission is something you do with people. Mission involves essentially community. And what you'll find in Luke's gospel, if you read it, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal every step of the way. Luke pays attention to this because he's an outsider writing this gospel narrative. He is not a a Jew who grew grew up in Judaism. He's an outsider. He's observing Jesus is eating with sinners constantly in his ministry. And what you see in Luke 14 is that the entire setup of this passage is Jesus at a dinner party. On a Sabbath, when he went to dine at a house of a ruler of the Pharisees, where they were watching him carefully. And at this dinner party, he addresses four people, or four groups of people. Actually, they're all the same person, but he addresses them in four distinct ways. One of those, he addresses uh, sort of this bad attitude of religiosity, He addresses a bad attitude of arrogance. He addresses a bad attitude of selfishness and a bad attitude of complacency. And you'll see this throughout Luke 14. We didn't read the whole passage today, uh, but you can open up your Bible app or New City app and you can find it or just read along. What happened at this dinner party that this Pharisee was having is that there was a man there that that had dropsy. You see this in verse 2. 
And what this is is a setup. It was continually people were watching Jesus to see if he'd heal on the Sabbath and break uh, sort of you know sort of code law, not actual you know, sort of Bible law, but sort of codes that had been added to the Bible. They wanted to see if he was going to do that. And um, and so this dropsy was probably a guy who had this kind of uh, condition where water was accumulating in parts of his body, often a leg. So he probably had one leg that was normal proportion, one that was much larger because it had been swollen with water. And they were watching him to see if he was going to heal this guy. And Jesus responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Uh, that's who's at the dinner party. So this is who's, who's addressing in verse 3. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And so he says, I understand that we're at a, a moment of testing. And so I'm going to ask you, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? If they say, uh, no, it's not lawful, when this man is right there before them, then they just look cold-hearted. If they say yes, then they're lawbreakers. And so he put, catches them in their own trap. And there are two values I want to highlight here that Jesus writes into the DNA of Christianity. And they are unconditional love and mercy. And there's another scene very similarly to this one where Jesus is at a dinner party. It's actually he's at a dinner party in Matthew's house, a tax collector, a notorious sinner, and the whole place was full of sinners. And in Matthew 9.13, Jesus says, you know what, I know what's going on here and all, all of your judgment about who I'm eating with and who I'm hanging out with and who I'm doing ministry with. He says, I want you to go and learn what this means. And I really do think that Jesus says, I want you to apply your best thinking to understand what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to understand what it means that mercy is more important than your religiosity. That your, if your religion is getting in the way of God's mercy, then you've got a false religion. Go and learn what this means. I did not come to call the righteous, but this, I've come for sinners. See, religion operates in a certain way. Religion is behave, belong, become. Right? So you're, if you're new to New City, you're getting greatest hits today. Right? This is religion. All right? Behave, belong, become. Uh, religion is always like, and, and this is true of, you can think about any world religion you want to think about right now. Most often it's about your practices that help you to belong to the community and then eventually to become within the context of that community. It's, it's uh, practices that kind of get you into a position where you uh, either become as part of that practice or belong as part of that practice, but it begins with what you do. Meditation, follow these practices, do these things. But with Christianity, it's different, always different. It's belonging first. So with Christianity, it's like Jesus at dinner parties saying, hey, you belong to me before you believe in me. And there's all this relationship depth going on with Jesus in his ministry, Always. And it's through the belonging that the becoming happens. And one of the ways you could kind of just test this theologically is you just ask the question, at what point was, was, uh, was, was Peter uh, saved? Uh, did he belong to Jesus before he was saved or after he was saved? You know, and certainly what you see is in Peter's life is all, all this constant struggle between belief and unbelief. And it's hard to pinpoint kind of the moment when he is confessing, you know, this, this, sort, of, this sort of faith. But it's obviously clear that he belonged to Jesus long before he became a Christian. It's belonging, becoming, and behaving. See, religious people are blinded partly because of their self-righteousness. They're spending so much time trying to work on their religion that they've grown cold to the needs of other people around them. So in verse 14, he says, uh, he says this to them. He says, which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen to a well on the Sabbath, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. In other words, like which of you had not already written in loopholes into the law to take care of yourselves, but yet the, your law is preventing you from practicing mercy to those who are struggling? How broken is your religiosity? Uh, this reminds me of an axiom that I often use at New City, and it's true of religious people, that you can, um, 
you can do this. Like you, 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 can, uh, you can practice a religion uh, that, is so, uh, that, is, that is so doable uh, that you kind of can live within its, within its doable sort of, sort of framework. And then what you can do is you can create a system of judgment where you judge others on the scale that most benefits you. And so you can so reduce Christianity to doable axioms, and you can live uh, under those doable things, and you can then uh, judge everybody else who's not doing the things that you're doing. But if you were to take Christianity seriously, like loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, uh, showing mercy, uh, you know, <laughs> having the attitude of Jesus, loving other, you know, loving, uh, see, seeking the benefit of others above your own, uh, you would find that the Bible calls you to a way of life that you cannot achieve. The Bible calls you to things that are well beyond yourself. It, 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 exposes, it exposes something about our own arrogance when we begin to reduce Christianity to doable things. When we know we are desperately in need of Christ all along. What, ha- what happens when we find ourselves you know, embracing our desperate need for Jesus is it opens our heart to others who are desperately in need of Jesus. I think Keller is, uh, is approaching this idea in the prodigal God. He says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending uh, Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, many of uh, our churches today uh, do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people, the licentious and liberated, or the broken and uh, marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. The way that we phrase that in the, in the history of New City is we often would sit our staff team together in the early days of New City, and we just say, who ate at your table? And in the last month, who ate at your table? It's kind of a monthly question we've, we've kind of let kind of slide, and I'm bringing it back during this Be Good News initiative for our staff team, but I'm just asking who ate at your table? It's one of the, like, the most practical ways in which you can test your Jesus ministry. Are sinners, are the broken, are the, the downtrodden? Have you, have, you had, have you had meals with the kinds of people that Jesus had meals with? If you haven't, then we're not living out the Jesus mission appropriately. It's one thing to serve a homeless person a meal. It's another thing to sit with that homeless person and to share a meal with them in community. It's one thing to, to, to be kind to a coworker who's going through a hard time. It's another, it's another thing altogether to say, let's go have lunch together. And let's, let's share the table together. And so at this dinner party, Jesus confronts some bad attitudes. One of those is religiosity that's getting in the way of mercy. Another is arrogance that's getting in the way of humility. What's happening is everybody's fighting over what seat to sit at at the table. And he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, (laughs) saying to them, and he kind of unpacks, you know, like, this is not the attitude of my kingdom. Another way of saying what Jesus is getting at in this parable is he says, in a me-first world, Jesus followers live with a you-first ethic. That's the way we do it. And everybody else in the world may be going, me first, look after yourself, look after number one, but Christians are not like that because we're freed from all that selfishness because we know that our God is a provider God and we know who we worship. We know that we are heirs of the throne. We know that our salvation is secure in Jesus and Jesus alone. So we're not trying to prove ourselves. We're not trying to earn anything. We are totally free to love God and to love the neighbor. And so when everybody else is seeking me first for good reasons because they're desperately seeking me first, we are freed up as Christians to be you first. 
Whoever would be first among you, Jesus says, must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But I will say this to you. You'll never have the courage to seek the interests of others above your own unless you are confident in the grace of God. Like you're never going to have the comp- you're not going to have the have the courage to step out in faith and say, uh, you know, in a me first world, I'm going to be a you first person, unless you're confident in God's provision. He concludes his parable in verse 11 of Luke 14: For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the confidence we have in Christ Jesus: that if we humble ourselves in the way He was humbled, that we can trust that He will also exalt us, and we put our we put. We put our lives in his hands. And so to those who are just overtly religious and the religiosity was getting in the way of mercy, he says, hey, that's not okay. Uh, to those who are fighting for the, the seat of the table, who are in their arrogance and not embracing an attitude of humility, he says, hey, that's not okay. That's not the kingdom way. And then to, to those who are selfish, he says, you need to have more grace. In fact, he says it to the host of the dinner party. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner, <laughs> when you give a, a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Can you imagine inviting Jesus to a dinner party and then critiquing everybody you invited to the dinner party? And so it's like, he's like, you know, he says, hey, by the way, uh, since we're on the subject of, you know, rebuking all of you, um, I'll, I'll spend some time on you, host. Okay, you've totally blown it on your invitation list. What he's addressing here is a cultural reality. Uh, and, and, and this was actually really a helpful thing for me. On Thursday nights, we were now doing a kind of question and answer time after the message. And uh, we call it Thursday Unplugged. And one of the questions that came out of Thursday night was like, hey, how do you practice this? Because this, this, the context of this passage is so unique. Uh, and, and it is a unique kind of context. Because we don't eat outside on our patios anymore. Uh, we don't have people walking by and seeing our dinner parties. Uh, in fact, we, we don't live in a culture where the reciprocity of that dinner party invitation happened in the context of a small town community. And so, but that's what's happening is that, you know, only those who could be invited to somebody else's house would be invited to your house kind of thing. But yet the poor, the lame, those who are on the outside of society were walking by and seeing these dinner parties. And what was being communicated is you don't belong. Like you don't belong here. You're not a part of us. We don't live in a a community, you know, in a world quite like that, but you could say that our world is transactional. That in the transactional culture that we live in, that Jesus followers live differently. We live with an ethic of grace. Uh, Joel Green says, central to the political stability of the empire was the ethics of reciprocity, a gift and obligation system that tied every person from the emperor in Rome to the child in the most distant province into an intricate web of social relations. Expectations of reciprocity were naturally extended to the table. And so what was happening here is that people are only inviting people to dinner who are the same class, who are the same, who are like them, who in some way benefited them, but they weren't being generous to those in need. And my, my response to that question was, I think that we need to apply our best Christian thinking to figuring that out. Like, how do we live out this principle, the principles of this text? I don't know necessarily what that means for all of us all the time. But every time you love someone expecting something in return, you're using them. And Christians are not, like, when we're loving, we're not expecting anything in return because true love is not, is not loving with, with, with an expectation. True love is loving without any expectation of return. It's just loving generously. 
So every time I'm, I'm loving you and I'm looking for what's to be reciprocated or what's to come back to me, that's not gospel love. It's not grace-giving love. I, we have to always be reminded of the grace that God has given us. For gra- by grace you have been saved. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works. It removes all of your boasting. This is, this is God, something God gave to you freely, not something you could pay for. So I think we need to, to embrace what Jesus says. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go learn what it means to, to, to love those who are oppressed and who are poor and who are crippled and who are blind. I think Christians should be dedicating some of our best thinking and innovation to living out the ethics of Jesus' kingdom. And I'll, I'll just say this as an aside, that we're trying to do that even as we think about facility. Like what, what does it look like to apply our best thinking and our, our, our best innovative thought to how to live out sort of this gospel of grace, even in, in our space? Joel Green, his commentary says, the behaviors Jesus demands would collapse the distance between rich and poor, insider and outsider. Like that's that's the kind of the work of Christians in, in society. Is, is to be that, that kind of, that, that sort of connective tissue that bridges those on the outside with those on the inside and brings people together, creates community. But I want to encourage you again, you will only ever be able to love like Jesus when you have been loved by Jesus. So he concludes his comments in verse 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, have confidence in the provision of God. Like have confidence in his, he's right, I mean, this is something we have hindsight. We can, we can look back now on this. They were looking forward to resurrection. We can look back on resurrection and go, you know what? Jesus conquered sin and death. He's raised from the grave. He's given me this inheritance. What could this world ever offer me that Christ hasn't already given me? And so in this series, like what we want to do is we want to wrestle with this big idea of what does it mean to be good news? What does it mean? I thought Tom Wright, looking at this passage, gets it so good. He says, once again, therefore, the challenge comes to us today. Christians reading this anywhere in the world must work out in their own churches and families what it would mean to celebrate God's kingdom so that the people at the bottom of the pile and at the end of the line would find it good news. That's a, that's a powerful sort of statement. What is it like to provide our, our best thinking and our most creative innovation to making sure that people at the end of the line, at the bottom of the pile, would find the good news of Jesus? Good news! Like, how do we live such good news lives that people at the end of the line, at the bottom of the pile, know that it's good news? I think the final point of complacency and urgency is a- appropriate for you and me at this moment. The invitation of God's grace is often rejected by self-righteous people because they are working so hard to prove that they don't need it. And because they're working so hard to prove they don't need it, they just, they, they're just like exhausted all the time. And what you find in Luke 14 is kind of the, the interesting twist here is that he's saying to everybody in the room, all these lawyers and these Pharisees, that you're blind and you're crippled and you're lame and you don't know it. When one of those who reclined to the table with him heard these sayings, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. 
And at the time of the banquet, he sent uh, his servants to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please excuse me. Another one said, I have a, a wife and I can't come. And um, maybe, uh, never mind. No, I should. There's, there's like an easy layup joke right there, but I'm not making it because I'm not a sexist. All right. And so uh, I just, you know, I heard myself say it out loud. I didn't practice it. And I was like, I'm not going to say that. Um, you know, so thank you, Jesus, for saving me from that. Each of those excuses, I'll just say this is lame. You wouldn't buy oxen without examining them. You wouldn't buy a field without examining them. Uh, blaming your wife is kind of like blaming the old ball and chain. It's not, I mean, none of it, all of it was lame. What is important to note here is what, uh, I, I, this Michael Card's commentary on this, uh, on Luke is phenomenal. It's, uh, but he says this in the, the opening pages of his commentary. He says, in Luke, what you find is those who, sh- those who should don't and those who shouldn't do. It's a constant theme in Luke's gospel. The religious are the ones that you would expect to respond to Jesus, and they don't. But those who are aware of their need consistently do. And what you find in this passage, there's no limits to God's grace. God's grace extends far and wide. So the servant came, reported these things to the master, said, everybody's got excuses. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. By the way, if you don't know that you're poor, um, you, haven't, uh, you haven't rightly understood the gospel. Blessed are the poor. If, you, if you're unaware of your own incapacity, just think through more clearly about the curse of sin and how it cripples you. If you're, if you're not if you're not assuredness of your blindness separate from God, just realize that the gospel's foolishness those who are perishing. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that your eyes are open to see the good news of Jesus. Like all of us are in, have this infirmity because of the fallen world that we live in. And when we recognize that, the, the sweetness of the gospel, oh man, it becomes so great for us. And the servant, <laughs> so the servant said, sir, what you've commanded, I've done. I went out and I told everybody and they're here in the room, but there's still room. And that, by the way, there's always room in God's kingdom for you. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways, the hedges, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Those who should don't, but those who shouldn't do. What's interesting about this passage, Tim Chester makes a, a note about it in his book, A Meal with Jesus. He says, documents from Qumran show that the Essene sect interpreted Leviticus 21 to mean that the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame wouldn't participate in the Messianic banquet. How significant then that in Jesus' message, they are the very ones who are included. In other words, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And here your religiosity has kept people on the outside. And I want you to know the people on the outside are the very people I want on the inside. That's Jesus' way. And as our eyes are open to our desperate plight separate from Jesus, this is the natural consequence. Our hands will be open to serve the desperate in the name of Jesus. And the more accustomed you come to recognizing separate from Jesus that you are lame, blind, and crippled, the, the more accustomed you will become to serving those who, uh, who are in need. In this season of ministry, we are calling everyone at New City to be good news for people in the city with their lives. That's what we're calling everybody to, to be good news for people in the city with their lives. That's the calling. To be good news requires eating and drinking at dinner parties. There you go. Praise God. All right? I can do that. Mission, I can, mission accomplished. I can make that happen. 
the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So I just want to just encourage you, your table is the primary setting for your mission. Dinner parties are important. Who you eat with is important. I would find ways to eat with the poor, find ways to eat with the broken, try, try, find ways to eat with the lost, try find a ways to eat with people who are not like you in your, your socioeconomic class, who are not like you uh, in terms of the storyline that they share, the race that they share, that you should recognize that, that this is the way of Jesus' ministry, it's community. And if you want to do ministry like Jesus, you need to start throwing better parties. Go be good news, right? Go be good news. Let's pray about this. Father, um, my big concern today has been like content overload, uh, and so uh, I'll just trust that your Holy Spirit sorts it all, <laughs> applies it, and that we walk away knowing what to do. Uh, I, I pray that for me, even having swam in this for a little bit, uh, I, don't want, I don't want to be stunned by information. I just want something to do to serve you, uh, to bring glory and honor to you, and to love somebody in my life. And I pray that you'd help me to be, to, to be good news. Um, and that I, I'm, I'm praying this week in my life for a good news conversation, a conversation about you with somebody. <sighs> Open that door for me that I might walk through it. In your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.